I've wanted to do a podcast on newspaper closures and the mostly hard-working men and women who fill them for ages. The idea drifts in and out of consideration, but it was brought to the forefront of my thoughts the other day when a friend sent me an article written by a one-time reader of the New York Times' sports section, detailing that the Times were finally closing their sports section down. Another one bites the dust. This one goes out to all those newspapers no longer with us, and for all those hacks who once populated them and made them what they were. Welcome to The Luke Alfred Show. I have 30 years of experience on the front lines of sports journalism, covering some of the biggest games in cricket, rugby, the FIFA World Cup, and even the Olympic Games. Come and join me as we learn about some of the greatest sports stories you've never heard. I'm Luke Alfred, and welcome to the show. News arrived recently that the New York Times is closing its sports department. The relationship between sport and the rest of the newspaper was itchy at the best of times. The story is told, for example, of Robert Lipsight, one of their star sports reporters of the 1960s, struggling to get the paper to recognize that Muhammad Ali no longer wanted to be called Cassius Clay. Lipsight was so embarrassed that he apologized to Ali for the Times' intransigence, According to a fine article in Esquire recently, when Ali heard the news, he patted Lipsight on the head and replied, quote, Don't worry, Bob. You're just the little brother of the white establishment. As it happens, the closure of the department was no great surprise. It had been on the cards ever since the Times bought The Athletic 18 months ago. Fans now want their news, opinions and features online, and The Athletic provides snappy coverage of the wider sporting world, such as the English Premier League and European football. The Times' sports staff, as I understand, will be deployed elsewhere on the newspaper. The Times' sports section didn't only stand at an angle to the rest of the paper. They were inherently odd. They covered tennis exceptionally well, but neglected mainstream sports like basketball. I suspect that Lipsight wasn't the only ex-staffer to mutter, quote, about fucking time, when he was told the news that sport was going under. While noting the closing down of the Times' sports section, let's not pretend that this kind of thing hasn't been going on for years at more humble titles around the world, places like the Wichita Sun News, the Bally Gary Bugle, and the Fremantle Speckled Gull and Tawny Albatross, from Calgary in Canada to Napier in New Zealand, it isn't only the picayune joys of the sports section that have folded. Entire newspapers have closed, as they've closed, an important thread in the texture of daily life has been lost with them. I know all about the closure of titles because I've watched the rapid decline of the South African print industry for the last 15 years. Every so often, I'll either get sent or stumble upon a story about the milk of good days turned sour in the endless sun of profit. Such stories will feature odes to the lost craft of banging out a news story on deadline, or the baleful influence of digital technology, or bemoan the fact that the young either don't read or read in different ways to how newspaper readers of a slightly older generation do. Such stories will be well written, wry and humanly true. They'll contain vignettes about drumming out a think piece or editorial at the drop of a hat because you want to continue drinking with the editor. They might even, God forbid, 
feature a story about being compelled to write something because, in your misguided hubris, you believe you have something to say. You think, in your aforementioned misguided hubris, that reading such a piece or story might, dare I use the phrase, make a difference. You dare think this because you, you yourself, are a reader, and you have read stories that threw a light on something new and so made a difference in your life, whether such a story was about the conflict in Syria or the tragedy of Zimbabwe. Maybe it was simply some advice from an agony aunt on the mind-shredding difficulties of being good wives and husbands and being good parents to your children. Death of a title stories follow a well-trodden path, almost as well-trodden, in fact, as the use of the phrase, well-trodden path. They are written by sundry Freds and Margos and Daves, people who are the spine of their respective titles for 20, 25 and even 30 years and now have a bone to pick with the world. Wherever you may be, Dave, Margot and Fred, whatever sense of millennial grievance you may be nursing because you've been poorly treated, I wanted to say this. This is a podcast for you, a little message in a bottle I send across the world. I hope you enjoy it and I hope some of your former colleagues do too. I stand beside you from far away South Africa. We don't know each other and never will, but we've been in the trenches together. If I was looking you in the eye, I would offer to buy you a drink. I know how you feel, no longer being part of the industry you once valued and served. I understand that you miss your beat and the camaraderie of the newsroom. I understand how you nurse your pennies. I identify with your recognition that journalism is as much about getting words down on the page and crafting a solid, sturdy sentence as it is about the microethics of what you are doing and how you go about doing it. When it boils down to it, print journalism is about knowing when to publish. It's about knowing how to treat a source with firm thoughtfulness. It is about what tone to use in the article you are writing. Satire can be useful and lampoon, but you have to be talented enough to be able to do such things first. Finally, journalism is about the tens of tiny incremental things that cannot be taught in school, but only in the wide, wide world of journalism. In conclusion, Fred, Margot and Dave, I empathize with you because I too cannot text with both thumbs. I am not a journalist of the modern age. I stand naked and unwanted amongst the legions of the forgotten. In the stories I receive every so often, and in the story I recently read about the closure of the New York Times' sports section, mention is inevitably made of those newsroom staples, the chain-smoking news editor whose stutter becomes more pronounced as deadline approaches, or the ornery editor, with those around him often worrying about which side of the bed he has woken up on. And let's not forget the stunningly efficient office secretary, the most important person on the floor. Without complaint, and largely without recognition, she is the one who keeps all those cogs meshing in perfect harmony. It's a world I miss in a vague, gently amused way. I don't miss it in a corrosive way, a way that haunts me, and I hope Dave, Margot, and Fred 
that you don't miss it in such a way too. Newspapers in their several daily editions aren't only acts of great collaborative goodwill, it's also not forget that they're frequently poorly managed, full of lazy people, myopic accountants, and narcissistic editors in love with the idea of being editors rather than actually doing the painstaking work of editing. For me, it all began one afternoon in the early winter of 1995, when I received a phone call from Chris Whitfield, the then assistant editor of the about-to-be-launched Sunday Independent. He wanted me to come into the newspaper's offices in Sour Street, downtown Joburg. Could I manage that? My wife was ill at the time and our first son, Samuel, was just over a year old. I told Whitfield it was awkward to get away without childcare. Could we please make it the following morning? Fortunately, he agreed, and the next day I went to an interview with him, the Independence editor, Sean Johnson, and the then sports editor, Rod Hartman. With a smirk on his face, one of the first things Johnson asked me was if I was the same Luke Alfred who, in a career-limiting move of great magnitude, had reviewed his collection of journalism, Strange Days Indeed, unfavorably a couple of years back. With a smirk on my face, I told him that, yes, I was that Luke Alfred, adding that as far as I remembered the review, written in a small free newspaper aimed at South African expatriates in London, was a qualified thumbs up. I waited to see how Johnson received my reply. I had done a little work for the independent sister title, The Saturday Star, by that stage, but it didn't mean that I was a shoe-in for the job. Such impertinence could cost me dearly. Whitfield waited too, and so did Hartman. After a pause long enough to have everyone slightly worried, Johnson replied that perhaps he had been imagining things, and he was only joking anyway. On a slightly more promising note, he had been enjoying my pieces in the then Weekly Mail, he said, and was offering me a job in the Indies fledgling sports department. I could discuss my salary with Whitfield and find more about the specifics of the job with Hartman, but after thinking about it for a few days and receiving an offer in writing, could I deal with human resources? The newspaper needed to get on with establishing a sports department. What followed were the happiest six years of my professional life. Alongside Rod, a dapper, silver-haired fellow who wore cream or khaki chinos and a blazer with his tie, was his layout and production man, Gavin Schmidt. Both men were astonishingly patient and good-natured, which was all the more impressive because Rod was suffering at the time from a rare form of leukemia, which meant that he was prone to colds and flu. He was occasionally away from work, which meant that Gavin, a small, squat, bald guy from the south of Joburg, took over with his customary good humour and lack of fuss. Only once did I see Rod ruffled. His eldest son, Justin, then in matric at Sandringham High, if I remember correctly, came into town after school one Friday afternoon and was mugged. Fridays weren't as busy as Saturdays, but they were busy enough. Rod was worried about his son, had things to do, and bemoaned the CBD's lack of security. Even though Justin was unhurt, he was bruised and frightened, and Rod let rip to no one in particular. 
For twenty minutes a heavy silence descended. The happy years came about because of factors both within and without our control. By contemporary standards, the paper was relatively well-resourced. Tony O'Reilly, the owner of the independent group, liked the idea of a South African Sunday title. And while we never came even remotely close to the Sunday Times in terms of circulation, there was talent at the paper and a sort of little guy camaraderie good for our identity and collective soul. We had space in which to roam. The paper managed to find a sweet spot between empty pages and the number of reporters and freelancers which we had to fill it pretty early, which, come to think of it, probably means that we had too much space and not quite enough copy. Gavin always used photographs big, which pleased the photographers no end, and stories were seldom cut, which pleased the journalists inordinately. Whether we were making money or not wasn't a concern that much bothered us lower downs. It was the only consideration years later when I worked at the Sunday Times, but then, in the cocoon of indie innocence, it was a thought we didn't give much thought to. We had a decent budget, which meant money for local travel, and although this sometimes amounted to nothing more than a trip to Kimberley to cover cricket, or Kronstadt to cover Yuxke, we were able to make the newspaper genuinely national. Happiness was a kind of two-way street, because while Rod was full of ideas of his own, he was also open to suggestions. Some of mine bordered on eccentricity, but seldom did we receive the thumbs down. As well as covering live sport, mainly cricket and local football and occasionally rugby, I also developed, and actively encouraged, a reputation for covering obscure sports, which might have qualified as an obscure sport all of its own. One of our consistent debates in the office, fueled with alacrity by Schmidt, had to do with whether, say, underwater hockey even qualified as a sport. Ditto, was pigeon racing a sport? Speedway? Speedway probably was a sport, although nobody seemed quite able to say why. But was sheep shearing a sport? That surely was more of a pastime or a sort of endeavour. It was most definitely not a sport. Being a Sunday newspaper meant that we worked a Tuesday to Saturday week. Tuesdays were short, lazy days in which we cobbled together a diary and pretended to think about the features, columns and news stories we should already have been thinking about. Although no one cared to admit it, what we were really doing on Tuesdays was recovering from double-shift Saturdays that had left us so knackered through our days off on Sunday and Monday that we were obliged to take it easy. If we didn't take it easy on Tuesday, we really would feel as though we hadn't had a properly restful weekend, which would leave us resentful. It was the kind of morose resentment that could easily leave us unproductive well into Wednesday, sometimes even deep into Thursday. This wasn't my experience exactly, but I will say that working for a newspaper was a little like being in a long race with lost sleep. It was a race you always knew you were going to lose, but sleep is such that you always want more of it and can't help yourself chasing it. On the other hand, the good thing about a South African weekend title 
was that we were always expected to muck in and help the production process. This meant that, in the rare event that we weren't in Witbank or Centurion or, my personal favourite, the George Goch Stadium just south of the M2 freeway covering Morocco Swallows on a Saturday afternoon, we were all expected to sub-edit or revise copy. So it was that on World Cup final day in 1995, I found myself subbing horse racing copy from Turfentain while the office emptied. If it seemed that everyone, bar Gavin and I, had gone to the rugby, it was probably because everyone, bar Gavin and I, had gone to the rugby. The machines we worked on, big, clunky behemoths, light years away from the high-powered Apple Max that was still a good five years away, were the size of old-fashioned microwave ovens. Keyboards were the size of doormats. You typed in red letters against a black background, and the system had a nasty way of allowing the copy at the end of the line to drop into an abyss of nothingness. That you knew you were doing something wrong didn't mean that you knew how to put it right, and I was young, which meant that I was too proud to ask anyone. In the days before I was fretting my way through the obscure joys of subbing horse racing copy, the clever people at the front of the plane had cottoned on to what everyone agreed was a smart idea. Through the week, we had designed two front pages. One of them was for a Springbok win in the final, another for the unspeakable disappointment of an all-black victory. The following day's newspaper was the very first issue of the Sunday Independent after all, and we didn't want to miss deadline on our inaugural issue. With two front pages, we were well covered, or so we thought. What we hadn't factored in was extra time. Extra time took time, time we didn't have. While the World Cup final might have had the temporal luxury of extra time, we had no time left. Deadline had come and gone. The presses were waiting. We were now lingering in the horrible emptiness of post-deadline time, with the score in the final locked at 12 all and no one to blame but ourselves. It all felt slightly better when Joel Stransky succeeded with a wonderful drop goal that gave the Springboks the William Webb Ellis Trophy. We could use one of the already designed front pages after all, but we were not as clever as we thought we were. We had timed out. Opening Sunday sales were compromised. It was a messy and unforeseen start. In my first couple of years at the Indy, I was also exposed to the inconvenient fact that the newspaper had readers. I never knew this. I was under the mistaken apprehension through most of this time that newspapers were written for other folk at other papers. Sometimes they might be read by friends and family. As for readers, who were they? We didn't have any contact with readers other than the letters pages and the occasional irate call about circulation that mistakenly found its way into our little hive of activity, the sports department. One fateful day, the photographer John Hogg and I ventured south to Denaceville on the banks of the Vaal Dam to cover a yachting regatta. The waters of the Vaal were brown and muddy. Denaceville looked like the very portrait of a backwater, the kind of place for which the term might have been invented to describe. 
I probably tried to disguise the fact that I thought as much in the feature on the Denaceville Yacht Club that followed in the next Sunday's paper, but clearly my attempt at disguise wasn't that hot, because I suddenly discovered that, yes, the Sunday Independent had readers, and quite a few of them lived in Denaceville. The good folk of Denaceville on the banks of the muddy Val wanted to lynch me. The mayor of Denaceville got involved. On the Sunday following the publication of the article, it was only letters from angry residents of Denaceville that graced the letters page. I was smug and self-righteous to the very end, but never have I returned to Denaceville for fear of what might await me. I hope that at least some of you, and Fred, Margot and Dave, recognize these stories as your own, or at least listen to this podcast and think about the great escapades of your careers with a bittersweet smile. And while I always think back on my years at The Independent as a time in which I had the freedom to roam, my memories are also colored by what happened over the years that followed. In later years, many of the founding staff didn't go on to bigger and brighter careers, as might have been expected. They just died. Rod slipped away and so too did the indefatigable Gavin. Peter Robinson, a fine cricket writer, died of cancer. Our founding editor, Sean Johnson, the man who accused me of writing reviews that were not in the best interests of my future career, also passed away. Prakash Naidu died. Distressingly, so too did Jeremy Gordon, my first news editor. Jeremy was praiseworthy and encouraging and unflappable. I can see him now, lighting his pipe, finding a place in his crowded office for his bike, talking in his deep voice. He is massaging his fingers, complaining that he's spending too much time at his keyboard. This must be what they mean when they use the phrase repetitive stress syndrome. Those were the days. Days when we spent an awful lot of time at our keyboards. If you enjoyed this episode of The Luke Alfred Show, please like, share, follow and subscribe. I write full scripts for the show in the form of long-form essays and these are all available on my Substack. To get written episodes of The Luke Alfred Show a day early on Fridays, please check out The Luke Alfred Substack. You can hear The Luke Alfred Show on YouTube, Spotify, Apple and Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.